Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you're joining us. A Reason for Hope is a... Yes, we're very close together, aren't we? Look at that. Within reach to poke you or bang your heads together like my mother used to threaten. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided, for the most part, by your questions on the Bible. That's right. If you have a question on the Bible, on Scripture, you can send those in through our multiple platforms. And we will delve into Scripture to answer those questions. That's what we're all about. So if you have a question, maybe there's a verse or passage of Scripture that you'd like to delve further into, maybe something even going on in your life, in your world, that you'd like a biblical perspective, maybe other uh, religions and worldviews, maybe things going on from a prophetic standpoint. Really, any honest question that you have, as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Bible to find the answers to those questions. So we're very glad you're joining us, and we welcome you to, as I say, send those questions in in whichever uh, way you are joining us today. With us in this kind of new setup here, sitting a little closer to me, to my left, your right, Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. Ever had the experience of thinking you saw a tray of brownies, but they turned out to be just dry baked beans? I can't say I've ever had that experience. Me either, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. You let us know if that happens. Also with us today to my right, your left, Peter Martin. How are you doing? Doing good. You doing good? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no nope. weird stories. No, nothing. <laughs> nothing <good. laughs> okay, I never a story. I had an imagined I don't know, inquiry. I don't know what to call it. You've created your whole new category of, of things. Um, well, as I mentioned, we are with you on multiple platforms. And allow me to share what those are with you now in case you want to hop around. It's my favorite part of the show. Your it's your favorite part of the show. <laughs> Mine too. It all goes downhill from there. No, it doesn't. It goes uphill. <laughs> Once we open the Bible, talk. it goes it goes uphill. Uh, as I mentioned, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time here in Tucson, Arizona. Don't be fooled by my accent. We are in Tucson, Arizona. Um, Reason for Hope is an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship. So keep that in mind when you're trying to find us. You can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you go to that Watch Live tab right there, before you <coughs> click on it, just click a couple to your right, see some of the events that we have going on. We have lots of Bible studies and groups and all kinds of things here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. So if you're in the Tucson area, uh, don't be a stranger. We'd love to um, have you come and join us for something sometime. So check out our website while you're there. But if you follow that Watch Live tab, it will take you out to our live page, which is at ccftucson.online.church. And you will see our video there. You can sign in with a username and be part of the broadcast there. But when we're offline, you'll see a countdown and a schedule of upcoming events as well. So you can check that out. Not just A Reason for Hope, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We're on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Search for that or facebook.com slash ccftucson. Don't forget to like and share. We'd love to uh, reach your friends and people in your sphere as well if you've been blessed by the ministry. If not, just don't share it. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> Tell no one. Uh, we have an app as well for your mobile device, whether that's iPhone or you know the other lesser Android. Uh, just kidding. I'm more of an Apple person. Uh, but if you look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you'll see our app there. It's the white Calvary Chapel uh, Dove logo on the red background. Uh, but we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. So if you have a smart TV or those devices, you can find our channel. Just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and you can watch us on your big screen. We're on YouTube, of course. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel or youtube.com slash at a reason for hope 546. 
that's a great place to go if you missed the show or you wanted to recap on a question that we covered. Sean here kindly puts the questions that we covered in the info on the video, so you'll be able to see. Question of the week. The tags have yet to be consistent. Oh, okay. Well, we'll encourage Sean to be consistent, but he also does a question of the week video as well. Um, so you, if you missed the show again, you can see the archive there. Also, our services and other events that we do here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. And again, same with YouTube. If you wouldn't mind click, clicking like and subscribe, click the bell so you get notified when we are uh, live. We would love that uh, so we can grow this ministry beyond uh, even where it's at. By the way, uh, you just showed me this last night, and I'm sure everyone else knows it, but I'm kind of tech stupid. So this is for the tech dumb people out there. Yeah. If you want to see an archived Reason for Hope episode, you have to hit the live tab. Oh, that's a good point. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I always thought if you hit the live tab, you would just see what was ever happening live. So I never clicked it. Gotcha. So The live streams <coughs> as opposed to the uploaded videos. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So if you want to see the archived live streams that we did, you have to hit the live tab. That's a great point. Thank you, Peter. Yes, indeed. Look, the, uh, the home will show you videos that we've, we've physically uploaded, and then the live tab will show you the archive of live shows that we've done. So yeah, yeah. you got to assume that there are people out there at least as dumb as me. So. <laughs> <laughs> at least. At how, least. Well, how would I, why would I assume that? <laughs> I know. I'm kind of the bottom of the barrel when it comes to technology. <laughs> Although you saved my life once. Maybe I'll share that story sometime that you... <laughs> I was about to quit and uh, leave the country, and you, you saved me in a tech I'm thing. I'm the reason you're still here. You're the reason I'm still here, <laughs> yes. I'll share that sometime. But uh, anyway, back to business as usual. Uh, our, our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, he's with us Monday, Wednesday, Friday on the show here. But you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at ScottR4H, and he posts highlights from the show. He posts kind of commentary on world events and like uh, from a prophetic and biblical standpoint. Um, it's very interesting to follow along. Um, definitely calls for prayer with so many crazy things going on in the world. So if you're on Twitter, please do follow Scott, Scott R4H. And then last but not least, our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. Um, so you'd want to use that email address and we'll get to that on our next show. But every other platform, we are live, live as can be. So get your questions in early. We very much welcome that. Again, as long as it's an honest question, as long as you know we're delving into the Bible to find the answer to that, get your questions in there. I personally will be fielding those questions as they come on in. So without further ado, Sean, would you like to pray for us today? I always give it to the, the, the secondary guest. <laughs> we'd love it if you would pray for us before we go any further. Would I'd like okay? to as well. Yeah, Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well. If there's anything that we have to say, we pray you would be the one to not only say it first, but to make it relevant to the lives of your people. We're available to be recipients of that, and we're thankful that we still have the freedom. We ask that we redeem this time and use this opportunity both as an offering to you and ultimately for your good pleasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, before we dive into questions, usually on Thursdays, you guys have been doing a book recommendation. Yes. Do you have one for us today? I did. Yeah? I did. I love this book. So uh, as all the books that we share in this broadcast, we're not just sharing books that have a lot of historical relevance, but also just books that we personally find really good and think that would be a very good read for you. This is one that uh, I, I try to give like a difficulty rating on various <laughs> books because I don't want you to to go into it like, oh man, Peter recommended this book and then hate it because it's just over your head and pertaining to topics you just don't care about. Uh, this has a very high difficulty rating. So mm. anyone who wants to read this book, just know that. 
entering in, if you don't have a like for philosophy, if you don't have a like for theology or intensive or philosophical compound history, words or words with three syllables. Yeah, you, you, this may not be the book for you. <laughs> uh, but good news, I am going to be on Tuesdays, every other Tuesday, Sean has given me permission to take an aspect of this book okay. and to break it down on Tuesday. So oh. those of you guys who find this material a little too intimidating, I think this is such an important work for apologetics and inter, uh, uh, interchanging with our particular culture that I do want to spend a couple Tuesdays to break it down into more detail and to make it accessible to just about everybody. So oh. look forward to that. All right. Now, the book title is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman. The full title is uh, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Whoa. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> just from the title, <laughs> you kind of know what you're getting into. Yeah. Like you... we could learn yeah. any more about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that common knowledge? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh, so Carl Truman, really interesting guy. He's a theologian. He has taught at numerous seminaries, both inside the United States as well as in the UK. He is a former native of the UK as yourself, Dave. So I'm oh, sure yeah? you know him personally. And, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, really brilliant guy. He's, uh, as I said, a theologian, a bit of a historian as well, and a philosopher. Because of that, what he has undertaken to do is he himself is trying to condense down the really abstract and difficult thoughts of guys, uh, uh, two of them that are most pertaining to this topic, a guy named Philip Reef who's a sociologist and psychologist, and also a guy named Charles Taylor. And he's trying to condense down their works, but also explain through the great philosophical minds of the last 500 years exactly how we got to this particular cultural moment. So this is from the introduction of the book. He says, every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems as to respond appropriately to them. So his attempt is to try to explain the current culture that we live in so that we could better interact with it as Christians. Now, this is very important because, you know, me and Sean, we like to study apologetics. And one of the first rules that you learn in apologetics is you have to bridge the language barrier. You have to figure out who you're talking to and what they mean by particular words. And because of that, you have to know what is going to communicate to them and what isn't going to communicate to them. So if I were going to talk to a Mormon, I probably would focus primarily on the loving nature of God and how good he is. I would focus a lot on grace, but then I would really heavily emphasize that their version of grace is distorted and why that's important. For a Muslim, I would never take that approach. Uh, Muslims, I would probably focus more on the justice of God and how their views and the justice that they uh, perceive within the writings of Muhammad are actually distorted and are not as strict as the laws in the Bible, actually. Uh, the God of Islam will just kind of willy-nilly forgive sins as he feels like it by, based on a whim. But you have to kind of understand just the basics of that before you interact with someone who's heavily ensconced inside of a belief system. What this book is, if you want to think of it that way, this is the best book that I've read that would help you understand where someone from a secular modernistic mindset is coming from. It is the best way to understand how they're thinking, why they're thinking that way, mm. and therefore what's the best things to talk to them about and the best ways to gear or to change a conversation. So it is very much an apologetic work. And that's why, like I said, I want to try to break down his arguments throughout the Tuesday apologetics days. 
Now, let's begin with, I just want to do a quick couple quotes from this, because as I said, I'm going to do it on Tuesdays and I want to keep this short for today. The first quote that I have is actually him quoting and then explaining a concept by a guy named Charles Taylor. Uh, this is a concept called the social imaginary. So I'm going to read the quote, I'm going to explain the quote, and then we'll move forward. So he says this, I have used the term social imaginary several times in the preceding pages. Perhaps the time has come to make clear what is involved by social imaginary. I mean something much broader and deeper than the intellectual schemes people may entertain when they think about social reality in disengaged modes. I am thinking, rather, of the ways people imagine their social existence, how they fit together with others, how things go, uh, go on between them and their fellows, the expectations that are normally met, and the deeper normative notions and Im images that underline these expectations. There are important differences between social imaginary and social theory. I adopt, adopt the term social imaginary because my focus is on the way ordinary people imagine, quote unquote, their social surroundings. And this often not expressed in theoretical terms, but is carried in images, stories, and legends. It is also the case that theory is often the possession of a small minority. Whereas what is interesting in the social imaginary is what is shared by large groups of people if not the whole society, which leads to the third difference. The social imaginary is that common understanding that makes possible common practices and a wide, widely shared sense of legitimacy. Now, that was kind of a mouthful. Let me break it down a little bit. What he's saying is that there is a way that each society imagines reality. And the reason why we have to do that is because much of what we understand about society is immaterial. Right? We're talking about ethics, morality, the way that we interact with one another, what is good, what is bad, what is true, what is false. These things are, for the most part, completely contained within the confines of our mind. They're, they're ways that we represent our thoughts in the ways that we dialogue with one another and the ways that we treat one another. Now, what he's saying is that this imaginary, the way we perceive the world, is shifted by, first of all, intellectuals, high intellectuals in philosophical positions, and then their thoughts are then understood and interpreted, sometimes well, sometimes poorly, by people who come after them that then disseminate their information, not through discourse, not through like what we're doing right now, but through the arts. And therefore, what happens is the artists kind of understand what these philosophers are talking about. They take their ideas and they mainstream them through their artistic expression. We're mm -hmm. talking about books, we're talking about poems, and we're talking about movies and even music, right? That is how these grand ideas become common sense to most people that live within a culture. Mm. So one of the things he mentions is that the first institution, the first massive institution that the church vacated, and this would have been back in the 50s, was the institution of Hollywood. When the church vacated Hollywood, the, uh, I guess you would call it the decay of our society mm. started to exponentially move in a very particular direction. Mm. And the reason why we vacated Hollywood is because we thought, well, you know, it's beauty subjective after all. And what does beauty have to do with the nature of God? Anyway, let's just focus on theology. Let's focus on knowledge. Let's focus on truth. Let's give beauty over to the world because, you know, beauty is beauty. And mm. wh what are they really going to do with it? They had no idea what was going to happen in the preceding years when you give the most powerful tool for shaping the social imaginary of a culture into the hands of people who are antagonistic towards your worldview. And a lot of Christians today, they still don't see a problem with the fact that quality media is not being produced by the church. 
They don't see a problem with the fact that the world literally owns all the means of entertainment within our mm. culture. They don't really see that as a big deal. And especially a lot of people like, uh, like us on shows like this that speak at an intellectual level, we think that this is enough, but you have to understand the majority of people do not understand truth through dialogue like this. The majority of people understand truth through aesthetics, through what they experience emotionally through beauty. Now, lest someone listening to this say, well, that's because they're stupid. They need to understand truth through the intellectual uh, rigors of researching and studying things. Two things on that. Number one, you're speaking about your personality and you're assuming that the rest of the world should think like you and they shouldn't. Number two, you're very foolish because you yourself are led by what you think is beautiful. Mm. You think that knowledge and truth are the most beautiful things and that's what leads you. But I guarantee you that you have thinkers and you have people in your life that you value their words and you listen to them and therefore they have much more influence on you than you care to believe. Mm. You think you're led by objective truth, but you're really not. This is again why the Proverbs say, be careful to take careful concern for your heart for out of it flow all the things of life. Mm. All the, the instances of life come from your heart. That's the seat of your emotions and your passions. And beauty is the number one way that that is conveyed to people. Mm. And I, I always have to point out that the Bible is not written like most theological texts, right? Try to read the Quran and tell me how beautiful it is. Mm. It's got a lot of truth in it, not true truth, <laughs> but the truth <laughs> pertaining to their belief system is contained in it. But it's not beautiful. It is like chewing mm. cardboard to get through that thing. Mm. The Bible is a beautiful book. Mm. It's not just written as laws and rules and regulations and things like that. It is written in story format. The majority mm. of the Bible is narrative. It's mm. all stories. Beyond that, the biggest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. Beautiful, poetic, Hebrew song literature. Mm. Uh, and even the prophets have intensive poetry within them. Mm. There's a lot of beautiful poetry within the prophets. So the majority of the Bible is not what we would traditionally call intellectual, rigorous kind of dialogue. Yeah. It is instead a beautiful array of various types of literature that convey truth, mm. right? They're entertaining to read. And that's why even people who don't know or believe in God <coughs> find the stories in the Bible so engaging, mm. right? A lot of people know the story of Jonah. A lot of people know the parables of Jesus. A lot of people even know the story of the Exodus, right? A lot of people watched the Prince of Egypt, even if they didn't believe it was historically accurate. That's not simply because we're, you know, formerly a Christian nation, but it's also because the story itself is an engaging story, right? It's a really, really good story. It's a true story, but it's just a very engaging story. So he really helped understand this. Now, what I'm going to be doing on Tuesdays is I am going to be talking about the philosophical thoughts that bled into the media. So we're going to be going over thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, and then even into modern days, people like Derek Bell. So I'm going to be actually, I've, I've, I'm reading, currently reading all their works, and I'm going to be able to give you guys a good summary so you don't have to because they're hard to read and they're not very entertaining. Uh, I'm going to explain their thoughts and how they've had an impact on the modern culture. Uh, uh, last thing that I want to mention is this idea of therapy culture. So I got two quotes here on the psychologizing of our current day. Uh, so this is again from his book. While earlier generations might have seen damage to body or property as the most serious categories of crime, a highly psychologized era will accord increasing importance to words as a means of oppression. 
And this represents a serious challenge to one of the foundations of liberal democracy, freedom of speech. Once harm and oppression are regarded as being primarily psychological categories, freedom of speech then becomes part of the problem, not the solution, because words become potential weapons. Now, what he's saying is, and this gets into Freud and his influence on our culture, one of the greatest thinkers to influence our culture in the way that it, it is right now is a guy named Sigmund Freud. And what he did is he took the scientific revolution that was happening during his time and he turned it into a way to evaluate human nature. And no other scientist tried to do this. And the reason why is because they realized that the evaluation of human nature is not a science. It's a philosophical endeavor. You need to understand morality, right, wrong, things like that. But it isn't scientific. Science can't touch human nature. It could tell you about the biology of a human. It could tell you about where we might have come from. It could tell you about where we might be going, life expectancy, things like that. But it actually cannot touch on the goodness of self. What Freud did is he took scientific language and he applied it to the individual. What that did is it showed people, well, it taught them a false reality in which they believe that falsely, that psychology is the truest understanding of human nature because psychology is scientific. This is why you hear people saying, well, it's the science. The science tells us this is the best way to treat people. What do you mean the science? Science can't tell me anything about human nature. Right. Science could tell me what would happen if uh, Dinesh D'Souza has a pretty uh, grotesque example of this. That I like he says, if I if I were to take a dog and step on it in front of you, science could tell you exactly what's happening to the body of that dog mm. as I do that. But science can't tell me whether I ought or ought not mm. to step on the dog. It tells me nothing about my inner nature. It tells me nothing about what I should or shouldn't do. Psychology is a look at not the true, but it's a look at the good. And by wrapping it in scientific language, even Christians have been deceived into believing that psychology is a valuable endeavor for Christians to take just at face value without any type of theology entered into it because it's a scientific endeavor, right? Just like a Christian would say, well, you wouldn't uh, make a doctor go through theological training before he would work on you, would you? You wouldn't insist that your plumber understand theology before he works on your pipes, why would you insist that your psychologist understand anything about God before he works on your mind? Because the mind is the intersection point between the body and the soul. It is a very, very important apparatus within human nature. And if you don't have a good understanding of what is good for humanity, which does not come from science, it comes from an ethical framework. If you don't understand that, then what you're giving people is bad science and well, it's not, it's a faux science, it's a fake science, but it's also antithetical ethical training. And that's what's happening. People are going into counselors not understanding that they are receiving ethical information. That's what you're getting. So even a lot of Christian counselors have completely absorbed the language of psychology. And later on in the book, he said, in our modern moralistic age, I mean, I'm sorry, therapeutic age, Therapy is now synonymous with morality, right? So that's what's happened. Therapy has actually taken over the conversation of the good. It used to be looked to through, you know, philosophers, people who are uh, studied wisdom, people who are theologians. That's where cultures got the idea of the good. Now we've completely given the idea of the good over to institutions that, guess what? Don't like us very much. Right? They don't like Christianity very much. And that's why, again, 
these organizations are becoming increasingly antagonistic towards Christianity. Mm. Uh, the, the modern day DSM literature, as well as the American Psychiatric Association, as well as the, even the Pediatric Association, all of them take the transgender issue as gospel truth. Mm. They believe that the only appropriate way to counsel someone who has gender dysphoria is affirmation therapy, telling mm. them that what they're experiencing is true and real and right. it actually redounds to who they really are as opposed to uh, something that might be a delusion, mm. right? So that is something that's very scary, I would say, mm. that when you see the culture going this way, you need to perk up and understand what's going on. So again, yeah. this uh, this book will really help you do that. There's much more I could say, but uh, again, I'm going to take the Tuesdays to kind of dive into these thinkers and elaborate more fully on it. Yeah, very good. So once again, for those who joined us, what was the book that you were covering, Peter, The Rise and Triumph of, of the, the Modern, modern Self? Yeah. By Carl Truman. Very good. So we'll be delving into that more on Tuesdays, you say? Yep. Very good. Well, cool. Well, thank you for, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. And um, once again, everyone, if you're joining us, uh, you're welcome to send your questions in. We have a couple of questions that are coming in, but we'll, we should have time to get to a few more. So if you're joining us today, send your question on the chat box of whatever you're viewing us on, and I will be filling those as they come on in. But... We had a comment and question from uh, from Renee. Uh, just curious, did you go to a school of theology? If so, where? Thank you and God bless to you all. Maybe we could. This is a question for all three of us. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Well, the we two are the living example of God using the foolish to confound the wise. <laughs> yes, that's good. Yeah, tell us more about that. Well, sure. I'm uh, utterly uneducated. I got my GED, and uh, that's as far as my formal education goes. I got a well. I won't go too much into the details, but uh, let's just say my attempts to pursue a college education were cut off short on account of me mentioning the Bible in my final exam. Mm -hmm. But as a result of just immersing myself in ministry and, of course, not being promoted right away, it was a very lengthy process, but um, just having a love for God's Word and doing so in such a way where I've demonstrated competence in handling it, as well as the leadership of our church trusting that the work that God's doing in my life is going to care more about truth than error. They've yeah. entrusted me to the education of our children's ministries, and here we are. Yeah. So you you wouldn't say that it was necessary for someone to, if they wanted to be in ministry or teaching, to go to a seminary? Would you say that was the, the first thing they need to do? Or, depends or? I'd, I'd say nowadays. Yeah. It I'd depends say. on the church again. Right. Can you talk more about that, Peter? <laughs> yeah. So um, essentially... The idea that ministers have to be educated in uh, ministerial practices is something that is very biblical. Something we see in the Old Testament, something we see in the New Testament. Now, the model that we see, even in uh, ancient Judaism, was the synagogue was the training place mm. of even young Jewish boys. And then later on, you would grow up and you would usually apprentice, if you want to call it that, you would apprentice under a rabbi, under a teacher. Mm. And this is what Paul did. Paul was an apprentice under a guy named Gamaliel. And this is actually what the disciples of Jesus were doing. Right? They, they, they had clung to a rabbi, and they were being taught by him in his various understandings of Torah and Tanakh. And they were planning on uh, becoming members of a school, the Messianic school, if you want to put it that way, until obviously they misunderstood greatly Jesus' ministry, and then he ended up dying and rising from the dead, and then everything changed. But that was something that was very present, even in the Old Testament. And then in um, Christianity, this has always been an idea 
that people are educated. In fact, the universities, Oxford, Cambridge, and even in the United States, Harvard, Yale, mm. all these were Christian edifices, right? Mm. They were places where people could go to be educated in theology, educated in various types of understanding so that they would be equipped and ready to lead and minister to God's people. So those are very, very good things. Now, what Calvary recognized is that there was a shift in the seminary programs that was moving into liberal Christianity very rapidly. Mm. And so what Chuck did is he kind of moved back into a model that we see primarily, like I said, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where you'd have a discipleship model, mm. where someone comes underneath a teacher, and then they are apprenticed, in a way, into the ministry by that teacher, and then slowly brought into uh, serving in the ministry as a whole. And that's what Sean just described. You're brought in, you show faithfulness and fidelity to the different things that people bring in front of you, and all the time you're being educated, right? You're sitting underneath yep. the teacher, and you're learning from them, and you're deriving theology from them, you're asking them questions, and slowly but surely you're being raised up into leadership. I would also say that we live in a very blessed time in which you have access to libraries of information for little to no money. Uh, used to, in order to get the level of reading that me and Sean have been able to do and research we've been able to do, in prior times, I would have had to go to some sort of a seminary to get. There's just no way I would be able to get this information. I have access to lectures from theological luminaries throughout the country at my fingertips on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I have Bible study software that is free online where I could see the ancient Greek. I could go into the Strong's Dictionary. I could get classes on how to understand these various ancient languages. Right, These things are accessible to me in such a way that I can, in a way, educate myself. Right. utilizing the resources available to me as well as the teachers that are available to me. Mm. And that's that's a liberty that I acknowledge that we have that I, I'm very thankful for. Mm -hmm. Now, Calvary, as it became a bigger and bigger movement, designed its <clears throat> own Bible colleges, which it has. But to this day, Calvary doesn't have a, a model like most churches. Most churches, you have to go to some sort of a seminary before you can serve in the ministry. Right. Calvary, <clears throat> I don't know of a, any Calvary that... Uh, makes you go to a Bible college before you could uh, serve on staff, yep. but it's available. It's, it's an available resource. As the Calvary movement grows, that might change for certain Calvaries. They might rethink it and make that a requirement. But as for now, that's, that's not a requirement in the Calvary movement. Instead, there's more of this discipleship type model that we see going on within our church. So that's why I said it, it, it depends on the church you're a part of. Right. If you're in a more traditional denomination, they're probably going to require you to go through some sort of a seminary. If you're not, if you're in a non-denominational church, you might not need any education. Uh, you know, my, my personal thoughts on it is I think that education is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think just, well, you know, I have, I have a desire to teach the word and I have a desire to minister, so I should just be plugged right in. That's just not true. You, you need to figure out your competency levels. What are you good at in mm -hmm. ministry? Because different ministers have different strengths. Do you have interpersonal type of competency? Are you able to resolve conflict very well? Are you able to communicate very well? Well, you might make a good counselor. Uh, are you able to teach? Can you put together sermons and lectures to help educate people in the congregation? And what levels can you teach at? Because some people can't communicate very well with different age groups. Me personally, I can't communicate very well with young people. Hence <laughs> the way that I use the term young people. Uh, you know, I've, just, I've never really, even when I was young, I never really related to people my age. So 
<laughs> the idea that I could just all of a sudden plug into a high school ministry and do well there is just is just not going to do very well for me. I'm not I'm not going to excel there. Uh, do you have musical gifts like your ministry? Are you able? Are you competent in music? And do you see a primary way for you to serve and honor God through music? And do you want to understand how to better do that and to learn and to serve underneath someone who already does it and to grow in your education therein? Uh, do you have technical skills? then again, the church can utilize you in their technical proficiencies throughout what they're doing and spreading the word. We live in a technological age. That's a necessary component to church now. So uh, whatever your competencies are, you try to apply them into the body, and you're always growing, though, in your theological understanding because that's the greatest importance to people who serve, that you understand God and you're able to communicate it. Even if you have a job that's not primarily teaching, that's an important facet because you will be an example to those who are in the body. So your relationship with God is going to be exampled by those who look up to you. Yeah, very good. Well, Renee, I know we, we took that beyond what you asked, but <laughs> I hope that's helpful. And um, thanks for sharing that, you guys. I had a question from Neil. Uh, he says, people use Galatians 4.24 to push that the Bible is mostly an allegory. Is the Bible mostly allegory or mostly literal? And how can we know the difference? Well, it's funny they make the point that through this one verse in isolation, that's the model and metric you use to judge the entirety yeah. of the handling of the Bible. Sounds reasonable. Whereas these three verses point out and explain an allegory referencing historical events and figures. Mm. So you first need to note that's kind of manipulative if people are doing that. Let me read the passage. It starts in verse 21. Uh, Paul is speaking to a cluster of churches. Galatia was one of the several regions that make up Asia Minor in the ancient world. We call it Turkey today. But these Greek cities and provinces that were taken over by Alexander the Great were getting caught up in what could rightly be called the first false doctrine of the church, the Galatian heresy. The book starts explaining exactly what it is, that unless you become Jewish, you can't worship the Jewish Messiah. And it got so bad that even guys like Apostle, the Apostle Peter got caught up into it. And so Paul not only had to call out when people who should have known better weren't being consistent with the gospel, but also explaining to people who knew the gospel that you're not adding to it, you're taking away from it. And so in making an illustrative point of contrast, again, Paul speaking to people who knew Jewish culture, says this, tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now, already we're not in terms of allegory. This is thorough sarcasm. <laughs> He's really trying to basically make someone feel foolish for the ideas they're adopting and thinking they're smart and showing this isn't actually intelligent. It says in verse 22 of Galatians 4, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now notice, Abraham had two sons. Is that a symbolic gesture, or do you think there was a guy named Abraham who had the capacity to produce two male offspring? That's obviously easily interpreted as literal, but notice how he applies it. One by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But, note this, referencing the uh, social status of his uh, wife and her handmaid, says, the one who is from the bondwoman, notice this, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Now, already, again, our symbolic 
events being described here mm-hmm. or literal events being applied and explained symbolically? Is it possible for a woman to give birth to a child? Is it possible for two women to give birth to two different children? This isn't unreasonable to take at face value, and it's referencing and treating Genesis as historical events. But in this specific section, what's being applied? He goes on to explain, verse 24, which things are symbolic? What? Abraham, his wife and her mistress, the fact they had children, or what? The fact that one child was born as a result of the promises of God, Mm. she was 100 or 99 years old, and well beyond the age of childbearing, a miracle was worked, and that produced Isaac. Another child was born as a result of a lack of faith in God named Ishmael, and we've been seeing the fallout of it ever since. God loved him. He was still made in the image and likeness of God. He had 12 sons that grew up and managed to produce great nations. But the point being made is this. He goes on to say which things are symbolic, what things were symbolic. He goes on to explain, for these, those in reference to the two children born, are the two covenants which the one born from Mount Sinai gives birth to bondage. Now, once again, is it reasonable for a mountain to give birth to a status socially? I think we've stepped into something a little bit more symbolic here, which is why the sentence, which things are symbolic, set the tone for the sentences going forward. It also noted as well, that's Hagar, a actual woman, but he's making the comparison, the one that gives birth to bondage. For this is, or for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, and he quotes the book of Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now once again, was Isaiah's point in this passage that a woman who has no children has more children than the woman who has children. No, it's describing the fact there are more important things at work than the number of kids you have. He's taken an actual, literal, cultural expectation of value for women and applying it in what way? I'm speaking of Isaiah. The fact that God can bless you in more than one way. And in Israel's case, in Jerusalem that is on this earth and Jerusalem that is above, a contrast is being made. The people, what set the tone for the conversation was those who hear the law, and those who think they can obey the law. Two different types of people. The people who hear the law understand the point that he's making in verses 28 onward. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, notice, actual historical figure applied as well to us, not in identity, but in mindset. Are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Even so it is now. Now, once again, was that a literal event? Is it possible that an older brother could bully a younger sibling? Peter, you have older siblings. Is that possible? Yes, he is nodding his head. What's also interesting as well, though, is that he applies it to a universal rule of persecution towards those who know God and those who think they know God. Is there an animosity between us and them today? Yes. Is it a result, literally, directly, of Abraham and Isaac's 
uh, I guess, severance from Ishmael? No, but it's being given as an example, the allegory there. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman, this is referencing Genesis, and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. The application, and he'll go on to explain this, is noting the point that the distancing of ourselves from those who aren't under the law is actually reversed. The people in the Galatian heresy were saying that, oh, we have to distance ourselves from people who aren't Jewish, who aren't under the law. Mm. But Paul says it's the other way around. You literally, by faith, are saved in the same terms that Abraham was, regardless of your ethnicity. Mm. The common faith in Jesus Christ is the common faith of Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Mm. Now, is that a literal belief that results in a literal salvation? I hope so. (laughs) And that's the point in all of this. Now, again, we went through point by point, sentence by sentence, when appropriate, asked ourselves as we went along, does this make sense literally or should this be taken allegorically? Obviously, when Paul uses terms like such things are allegorical, probably a hint. But if he then goes on to make points, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. We're of Isaac. What is literal? I could say the ones that make sense literally. Mm. What is allegorical? The ones that make sense allegorically. Mm. I don't just determine that by what sounds nice to me, but I note his references and ask, does that follow? So when people are coming with an agenda, I guess, in the Bible, the goal isn't to discern allegory from literal descriptions of fact. The goal is to distance themselves from the things they don't want to be literal. They don't want to be direct statements of fact because it will either conflict with a preferred lifestyle, prior obligations and assumptions, or the like. But you need to be careful when we adopt this mindset of cafeteria Christianity and say, well, that doesn't mean what it says. Or can it? Well, it shouldn't because I have these prior obligations. People will rarely be so honest, but you need to be sensitive to those things. When it comes to the handling of the Word of God, just make sure that we treat it like any other piece of literature, albeit ancient literature, albeit first-century Jewish literature, but literature nonetheless. And literature, as my dad oftentimes says, is usually intended to be taken literally. Mm. But if, on the other hand, you note, okay, so... Why do you believe then that a mountain gave birth to a status of bondage? It literally says in that sentence that these things are allegorical. Mm. But if on the other hand you'd say, so how do you know the allegorical from the literal? Maybe in the sentences that tell you this is allegory. Revelation's another lightning rod of controversy for this. How do you understand anything that's going on in there? Well, you go to Revelation 12 and it says in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. Oh, signs. Mm. We're getting symbols here but in reference to literal events. We then get descriptions in, say, for example, Revelation uh, 14, of an actual temple being measured with actual measurements and being divided up according to the book of Ezekiel's predictions. Okay, there's a temple here, and there's two guys standing outside of it that are references, again, to these symbolic prophecies, speaking of literal people. Is it possible that two people can speak outside a temple? I've done it. <laughs> I, I think I can uh, exist outside of the realm of allegory. But if on the other hand you'd say, oh, so these two guys are going to look like olive branches with pipes giving a perpetual state of oil, as Zachariah predicts. 
no, that doesn't make sense, and that's not how Zechariah took it either. Read the passages. But be sensitive to that when we ask, the whole thing's allegorical, or the whole thing's literal, there's nothing in between. Who treats anything like that? Mm. And, of course, if they insist on that, then call them to be consistent, because I guarantee you, if they want to take the Bible as allegory, they do apply it literally, but in the ways that they like. My authority shouldn't be based on my emotions, it should be on what God has revealed, and God has revealed his word to us in a way that makes sense if we have the patience and wherewithal to take it point by point. Right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a very good question. Uh, It's one that people have struggled with from ancient Israel all the way into the early church. I mean, Mm -hmm. you had a lot of early church fathers that were asking this question, and they didn't no. Until today. When yeah. you ask the <laughs> Until today. So, I mean, this is this is not like a new question. It's one that's very, very old. Rabbis struggled with it. Like I said, early church fathers struggled with it. It's just something that we're, we're always wrestling with. And how do we take the Bible? How do we understand particular passages? The Bible is dense, it is deep, and it can be taken in many different ways. And so it is mm-hmm. a difficult thing to surmount and it is a difficult thing to try to attack. And I, I just want to separate in my mind real quick the difference between someone who's coming at this from a good faith argument and someone from a bad faith. So there are people who come to this, and as Sean was kind of alluding to, and they have, it's bad faith intentions. It's just that they're intentionally being uh, ignorant and foolish in the way they're interpreting the Bible to make the Bible sound stupid. And you'll figure out if you're dealing with people like that pretty rapidly. But there are a lot of people who are coming to the biblical text in good faith, and they don't know which passages to take allegorically and which passages to take literally. And it's very tough for them, but they are trying to align their lives to the words of the text as well as they can. And, and again, there are many church fathers who, like I said, took the entirety of the Old Testament as completely allegorical. Uh, I think that they're completely wrong, but I can understand why they started to think that way. And given what was happening in the culture and giving uh, the persecution from the Jews in the first century, I can see why they did it. It was just a, it was just a misstep. It was not something that was good for them to do. Mm. But they were trying. They did see the Bible as true in the sense that they believed that the allegories the Bible was teaching were objectively true. And they were trying to submit to them in the best way they could. And some of their writings are kind of useful because, you know, like Gregory of Nyssa or Origen, you know, some of the writings are kind of useful because they do give us a little bit of insight of like, oh, it's kind of an interesting insight there. Uh, these were very, very bright guys. They were mis, you know, they were mistaken in a lot of ways, but they were very bright guys. And so there, there are insights there that you can pick up. So I think it is a mistake to look at this as a question that could only be coming from bad faith. Uh, I don't think that that's true. I think it can be coming from good faith, and I think we need to respond to it accordingly. Mm. Um, I, I like what G.K. Chesterton said. And G.K. Chesterton, he was talking about madness, which I think is kind of funny in his book, Orthodoxy. And he says the mad person is not necessarily the person who's wrong but might or stupid, but he might be a person who's very smart and is just functioning off of one false premise. Mm. So if I truly believe that zombies are real and they're out to get me, if I have a really high intellect, actually, and I take that one false premise and think it out to its logical conclusion, I'll start acting in a very mad way. Mm. So oftentimes, again, when we look back at these guys, we're like, man, these guys were crazy. Uh, you know, Origen literally emasculated himself. Uh, you know, it's like, well, no, he's not crazy. He was hyper intelligent, but he was functioning off of a couple false premises mm. and he was thinking them through to their logical conclusion. So, again, it's it's important that we look at it appropriately. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Thank you.
Thanks, Neil, for that question. It is indeed a great, a great question. Good thing to, for us to balance out when we read the word for sure. Um, Follow-up question from uh, Taylor: Does Calvary recommend talking about colleges and going to Bible school? Um, does Speaking Calvary on recommend... behalf of all of Calvary? Yes. <laughs> does, does Calvary recommend any colleges or any colleges that you guys would recommend if somebody wants to go to Bible school? Given my experiences, I don't have much to say, but yeah. Uh, so um, obviously, if you're ta- asking what Calvary would probably say, they'd probably encourage you to go to the Calvary Bible College. Bible College, yeah. Uh, so there, Is that still there? in? Um, yeah, so there's one in Marietta, California. Yeah. I heard um, that was like closing down the, the um, with the, the hot, hot springs and all that. That uh, it was, that'd be a bummer. I know, but yeah. I'm not sure about that. Because that's why out. I wanted to go, is for the hot springs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> Truth it's be told. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I've, I've been there before. It's yeah. very beautiful. They have campus. a lot of conferences there, the worship conferences there to, as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. So, that's right. Yeah. And, and I think the worship college is out of Los Angeles, right? Um, the, school, the school of worship? Yes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so there's, there's those. I think that I could be mistaken, but I think Calvary Tucson actually has uh, a college out here, yeah. correct? Mm. Yeah. So uh, Calvary has a, a lot of Bible colleges across the country. You could look them up. I think a lot of it's online learning. Uh, I've heard good things about Hillsdale. Uh, I've heard good things about Dallas Theological Center, mm. Seminary. So, you know, I, I'm not giving them my stamp of approval because I haven't gone through their education material, but I'm just saying I've heard good things. So yeah. I can't, I can't give a, a total like stamp of approval. But as I said, for someone like, you know, when me and Sean are talking at this level, if you're listening to it, you're like, wow, like, how did these guys get this knowledge? It's really crazy. It can be a little disheartening if we say, well, we're kind of self-educated. Well, not everybody could do what me and Sean did. <laughs> you know, like it's uh, it, you have to have a very particular mindset to go through the levels of material that we're going through to want to do that, first of all, and then to interpret it correctly and understand it and listen to different commentaries on it. That's quite the endeavor. And we're doing this on our free time, right? So we have our actual jobs and then we're doing this on our free time. If you want something where it's just a focused education and you have good professors that are helping you understand the literature so you don't have to read the books in their entirety, I think that college can be very beneficial. Mm. And, uh, you know, so obviously, as Sean has alluded to, there are some bad colleges out there. Yeah. There are some bad colleges that will not give you good information and they will actually disrupt your education. They will indoctrinate you in particular ways. In so, the name of God. In the name of God. So yeah. be very weary of that. Do research on where you want to go to seminary. Understand, I mean, they're usually pretty upfront about the ways that they look at things. But when I said that a lot of seminaries are becoming more liberal, what I mean by that is I'm not talking politically. I'm talking about in a theological sense. So there are many, coll- many seminaries right now that look at the Bible and like, well, you know, Daniel didn't really write Daniel and, you know, you know, probably Matthew didn't write Matthew. And these are kind of later <laughs> dates. And, uh, you know, maybe Jesus didn't actually do what is said here. And maybe Paul didn't actually write this book. And, you know, it's very loosey goosey. To begin in Wellhausen were debunked 200 years ago, but, you know, they were smart guys. They wrote a lot. Let's teach it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so th- there's a lot of information you're going to get there that, that wouldn't be what we would call Orthodox. Right. right. And it's, it's cloaked in scholarly language, but a lot of it is a denial of divinely inspired, the divinely inspired Word of God, and therefore the supernatural content that is within the Scriptures. So uh, I would say be very weary about whatever college you go to. I could, I, I have no reason to doubt that the Calvary Bible Colleges are not excellent. <clears throat> I, I, uh, I'm a big fan and proponent of the Calvary movement, so I, I believe you wouldn't go wrong there, yeah. but that's just my thought. Yeah. Yeah. And you probably want to go to your church 
leadership yeah. you know whatever church you go to Absolutely. whether it's here or whatever but go yeah. you know because they would obviously have that recommendation kind yeah of further uh, study, update so. from uh, scott richards noting the uh, bible college it's moving to twin peaks and lake arrowhead oh cool oh okay so, there you go so they are shutting down that that facility there which is that building but not the faculties yeah, yeah well good oh great well thanks for Thanks for updating us on that. Um, we have a question from Fred. I'll, I'll get to this because I know that, Fred, you were with us yesterday and I um, appreciate you restating your question. But he was asking about, uh, he said he was at a prophetic conference and they said that the Asbury revival is mm -hmm. in the Bible um, as Chuck Smith. Chuck is the mouth and the upcoming student is going to be a future Chuck Smith. So are you yeah, guys familiar they're... with? I don't know anything about this. No. no um... <clears throat> Let, let, let's just speak in as broad strokes as possible so that people don't, you know, get fussy about the lesser details when it essentially comes down to it. And you summarized this for us yesterday, and this was what was claimed. A lot of emphasis on specific contemporary individuals and reading them into scripture, saying mm. under the title of a prophet, right. third red flag already, but... Uh, under the title of a prophet, thus says the Lord, this kind of authority, and you need to hold them to that. Um, the Chuck Smith to come is instead of apologetics and Bible teaching, there's going to be a new revival as a result of worship and music because that makes sense. And I'm being sarcastic. And of course, uh, because this is coming from a prophet and because we're seeing all these people come to faith, the numbers, the crowds that are gathering with this revival movement are proof of its validity. Um, great. The Bible disagrees. When it comes to what we determine the truth of a prophecy of and not of, it's based on 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 19 through 21. Don't despise prophecies. We don't hear about a revival and automatically go, false teachers, dismiss them, whatever. Mm -hmm. Great, just words of God's going out. If that's there or here, all the more better. But test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. What do we test it according to? We test it according to what God has already spoken. And if they're speaking either in the name of or by authorities that aren't actually there, that they haven't fallen in line with the biblical test of a prophet, they haven't performed public miracles, they're not accountable under the old covenant law for capital punishment if they commit a false or speak a false prophecy in the name of God. They are claiming these sort of titles to be taken seriously. They're mentioning these sort of names to be taken seriously. They're appealing to people on the basis of things that are good, a desire for revival, a desire for more people to be into God's word, all good things, but a lie with good intentions is still a lie. If these prophecies, and again, it doesn't condemn the whole movement, it's not invalidating the salvation of the people who are part of this, but that teacher who spoke those things, the individual who's trying to read into these names in order to be taken seriously is, and I don't even have to condemn him, I'll just point this out, is standing on and depending on an authority less than the word of God. I'm named after Chuck Smith, and I know that he would be the last person to be that would want to be used as an authority for why someone should take something as gospel. I personally, opinion speaking, would want nothing to do with this. Factual statement speaking, scriptural authority backing this up, compare what they're saying with what God's Word actually says, not what they're trying to do to get attention or subscribers, if you will. Very good, very good.
Like I said, I don't know anything <clears throat> about it, so. Okay. Just, just in terms of prophecy okay. in general, we got a minute. So okay. is there you anything don't have else to say anything. about that? If you're not comfortable, <laughs> it's all right. Uh, do just you have another question that you think we could get to in a minute? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Talon asked if Calvary offers any kind of counseling, and actually Peter Martin here does <laughs> He's a lot of counseling. Yeah, so <laughs> yes. you can answer that in a minute. Yes, I can. Yeah, so uh, Go ahead. Uh, pretty much all Calvaries, I believe, do offer some sort of biblical or pastoral counseling. Mm. Uh, I am, as you said, I am the main counselor here at Calvary. Uh, as well as my friend Lisa Keller. She mm -hmm. also uh, counsels with me and uh, primarily focuses on the women and as well as yeah. couples. But and it's so good. It's so yeah. good. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, we're trying to expand and we're trying to educate, talking about education a lot this, uh, this broadcast. I think one of the main things that we're seeing is that biblical counseling is kind of going the way of the world. And so there are many moves, not just, not just what we're trying to do, trying to educate counselors in a biblical theological understanding right mm. so biblical counseling if you want a quick rundown biblical real, counseling real starts with the bible and says what are the things that i can uh like starting with this is my foundation mm. as objective truth what things from psychology adhere to this mm. where christian counseling tends to start with what things work and then how do i read the bible back into it mm. so that's the the major distinction between the two yeah very good well so yeah, Taylor, we do. Um, thank you for sharing that, Peter. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Sean. Peter, thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this new, uh, slightly more closed-in internet <laughs> setup. We're making more tweaks to it, but thank you for being part of our broadcast. We'll be back again tomorrow, same time, same places. Uh, it's Friday tomorrow, right? The last day of the week for Reasons for Hope. But we will hope to see you then. God bless you. Wonderful evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.